You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Yes, wonderful to be together. Uh, if you are new here, I want to welcome you. And if we've not had an opportunity to meet, my name is Craig. And I am one of the pastors, and it is just really our thrill to have you here uh, joining us for worship today. And I pray that what God has for us will, will serve you and benefit you. Uh, we are finishing a little summer mini-series today, and it has been on last things. That is, uh, we've looked at the four sort of final things in human history uh, the four, these could be kind of the four pillars of eschatology, which is the study of last things. The first, first we looked at the return of Christ, uh, and uh, several weeks ago, it's been probably four or five weeks ago now. Uh, then we looked at the resurrection, meaning not Jesus' resurrection, but the resurrection of all people. Uh, we looked at that. Uh, then the third, the third in the four is the final judgment, which we skipped last week and went on to... Uh, the new heaven and the new earth. So that's what we talked about last week. And today we're sort of circling back and looking at the final judgment. Uh, if you're a guest with us, we are glad that you are here. Uh, and maybe you're new to the Bible. And, and if so, I want to let you know that the passage of Scripture we're about to read is perhaps the most sobering passage in all the Bible. I, I'd be hard-pressed to find a more sobering passage. But we believe, as we heard read to us just a few minutes ago from God's Word, that, that God's Word is inspired. The Scripture is all inspired, which means that it's true, and it also means that it's authoritative. And because it's authoritative, we benefit from all of God's revelation. Whatever He reveals to us in all the Bible, we benefit from knowing that and believing it. And in today's passage, if today's passage is true, and I believe it is, if today's passage is true, then it changes everything. It absolutely changes everything in life. If there is a final judgment before God, and there is an eternal heaven and an eternal hell, then that is a reality so compelling that we mustn't ignore it. Uh, we mustn't ignore it. We must understand it. We must read of it. We must think about it. No matter how uncomfortable it may be to consider, God has given us this revelation, which is both a warning and a tremendous comfort and hope, depending on how we have responded to him. So judgment is talked about numerous places in the Bible. Um, but we're going to look at Revelation 20 because this is perhaps the most descriptive passage uh, anywhere in the Scripture about judgment. Could I ask that today, could we stand together for the reading of God's Word to, to pay attention and to stand? It, it, we always want to treat God's Word as reverently, but I just feel an unusual sense today of standing before and hearing God's Word. Please listen to God's word. Then I saw a great white throne, 
and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written, found, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Lord, speak to us today from your word. May your truth resound in our hearts. May you show us the glory of Christ and the salvation provided through our Savior afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Let me say something about the book of Revelation because it tells us something about God's character. The book of Revelation, which uh, this is almost the end of the book, is, was written uh, to six churches. It's, it's a letter, but it functions differently. I'm sorry, seven churches. It was written to seven churches, um, and it was written to a sort of a small band of believers that were under Roman rule. They lived in a hostile environment, hostile to them, hostile, hostile to their faith. And so what God does in Revelation is he gives this extravagant vision, actually multiple visions, to John. And it, they are all pictures through fantastic figures and occurrences. They are all sort of pictures, many of them symbolic, of God's rule and God's reign. It's as if God opens up, kind of rips open the sky and shows everybody what's going on behind the scenes, that he rules and he reigns. And he does this so that they will have faith to persevere, knowing that God himself has not left them, but is actively ruling and reigning. He also gives them this vision, gives John this vision, because this encourages them to persevere as well, knowing that God will sort out everything in the end that he will rescue his children for an eternal life and a new heaven and new earth in his presence, which is the next chapter, verse 21, and that he will also punish his enemies, that those who are harming the church, those who are persecuting believers will not get by with it. It looks as if they're getting by with it in this earth, but there will be justice, and not just those who are persecuting believers, but all will be judged and held accountable for their sins. This scene, this, this scene of God's final judgment, it, it is an unspeakable terror to unbelievers. And, and it should motivate those of us who are believers to cherish the gospel all the more and to share it generously, even urgently. To share it generously, even urgently. An unspeakable terror is this scene that we have just read. I'm going to walk through the scene, and there's really three, uh, three parts to the scene, I believe. First is the judge. Secondly is the judged. And finally, the judgment. The judge, the judged, 
in the judgment. First of all, the judge. Verse 11 says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Begins with just this vision of an incredible throne and one seated on it. it. The throne sort of dominates the whole scene. This image of the throne dominates everything that we read. It's an imposing throne. It's a, it's a great throne. And, and what makes the throne great is that the one seated on it has all authority. He has the authority to judge everyone. This is the final event of human history, and everyone is gathered before this great throne where the sovereign ruler of the universe is seated. And make no mistake about it, in this moment, there's no one questioning God's authority. There is no one dare mocking God in this moment. There is no one who is ignoring God in this moment as they stand before this supreme ruler on his throne. No one is ignoring him as they stand with the mass of all humanity awaiting judgment. The great throne reveals the sovereign rule of God, but it not only reveals his sovereignty, it, it also reveals his holiness. John sees a throne that is great, and it is a white throne. Now, don't think of this as a large throne that's sort of painted with a flat white paint or something like that. The word translated paint, or rather, word translated white, also means bright or gleaming. The word means that it is white in the sense that it is shining, emanating light. In, in the scripture, there are two sort of ideas behind God's holiness, and, and they're both represented here. It's white because it gleams God's perfect holiness. One idea that the Bible has about holiness, God's holiness in particular, uh, has to do with purity. God is pure. God is righteous. God is spotless and without sin. God is immaculate, perfect in every detail. We often think of that as righteous, uh, the holiness as being the righteousness of God. And, and that's certainly uh, pictured here in the nature of the throne. But there is a, another idea of holiness in the Bible. This is probably the primary idea of holiness, and that is otherness. God is separate. God is not like us. He is other. He is set apart from us. He is altogether distinct from us and from all creation. And this will never be more apparent than in this moment when the holy God of the universe is judging all of humanity assembled before his throne, which shines and radiates out his holiness. God, God is so holy that what the text tells us is that I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. It, it, it literally means that they fled away from the face of God. When all creation stands before the unfiltered, 
holiness of God. There is no place for the universe to even exist. I mean, this moment is, it's, this is unimaginable. There's no words to even describe this. There, there's no special effect that Hollywood could create that would sort of simulate this event, that before the face of God at the moment of judgment, the first act of judgment is that all the universe as we know it flees from his face. I mean, you take the most powerful experience, natural experience on planet earth, and it just, it doesn't register compared to this. A hurricane, lightning, a tornado, an earthquake where everything is shaking and destruction comes to the earth does not even register compared to this moment. An atomic explosion, perhaps the, the strongest experience that we would know on earth, it's not even a whisper compared to this moment. When all of the universe flees from his, his face, Scripture tells us that in, in 2 Peter 3, that it, that it all dissolves. It dissolves to make way for a new heaven and a new earth. Now, one thing that I haven't commented on is that the text doesn't tell us who it is on the throne. The Bible speaks of God judging, but the Scripture also refers to Christ executing judgment. Christ, of course, is God. But John 5, in John 5, Jesus says this, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgments to the Son. Paul, when he's preaching uh, in Acts 17, says, Because he, meaning God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That there's a glorified man on the throne, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So we certainly could say that God judges, for Jesus is the God-man. But the scripture seems to indicate specifically that this is Christ who will ultimately judge. And so I think it's safe to say that Jesus sits on the throne, the Holy sovereign ruler who has ascended uh, to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father and rule. That's the judge sitting in authority, absolute authority, with blazing holiness emanating from his presence and from his throne. The second part of the passage talks about the judged, those who are being judged. Verse 12 says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So it would appear that all the dead are present. Great and small is sort of an inclusive term that would seem to indicate indicate all people or all kinds of people. This happens after the resurrection, for verse 13 says, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, the death and Hades gave up the dead who were within them, and they were judged, each one of them. So it seems that everyone who had been dead has now been resurrected, 
and is present for judgment. I think there's two other reasons to believe that all people will be here, believers included, Christians included. One is that twice, at least twice, the book of life is referred to, that there are books, but verse 12 says another book was opened as well. This is the registry of God's people, those who are in Christ, and it would seem to be that that would be unnecessary if the judgment is fully by the books and no one is in the book. It seems unnecessary to twice reference that, but perhaps a stronger argument for why I believe everybody's there is from Matthew 25, where Jesus talks about the great day of judgment. And Jesus says that all will stand before, uh, before the judge and that the sheep and the goats will be separated, that believers and unbelievers will be separated before him. So my assumption is that everyone is present at this moment. And this is, again, unimaginable to imagine a gathering of all humans in history before the Lord. Everyone, not only everyone, but each one will be judged, is what the passage says. Verse 13 says, um, they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Each was judged. It's important to note that God's judgment is individual. That This moment is not a judgment of nations. This is not a judgment of families. This is not a judgment of couples. But rather, every individual gives an account, is judged themselves. Each person, great and small. It's interesting that it says that. Great and small, everyone before the throne. The throne is sort of the great equalizer. Doesn't matter if you were great or not great, if you were small and insignificant in the world's eyes, or you were great in the world's eyes, the throne is the equalizer. And I've got to believe in this moment that so much that is important to us today will not be important in that moment. So much of what we build our lives on, so much of what we chase, so much of what we live for won't matter on that day. Great and small, it doesn't matter if you were a CEO or a custodian. It does not matter in that moment. God will not be giving you points for your career achievements in this moment. God won't be impressed by the size of your social media following. In this moment, he won't care about how great was your 401k, how loaded was it. He won't be impressed by your well-appointed home in this moment. That's not what the judgment's about. He'll not be impressed. If you're a young person here today, I just want to urge you to think about this passage just read it and take it at face value if you're a young person. So much of what matters right now will not matter. It will not matter how attractive you are to others right now in that moment. It will not matter how cool your clothes are. 
will not matter how smart you are, how athletic you are. Only one thing will matter, whether your name is in the book of life. That is all that matters in this moment. And it's tragic that we give so little thought to that in life, that we live our lives ignoring this and trying to amass and build and attain and achieve and be known for so many other things. We, we must think of our lives and what we're doing and what matters to us in the context of this moment. How wise to look to this moment and say, what will matter on that day? That's what must matter on this day. Some of us in the room have heard the message of the gospel. We've heard about Jesus Christ. And it's, we've grown so familiar that, that we just, it just doesn't land on us in a serious way. I remember one time I was driving on a freeway and I was behind this 18-wheeler, and I don't usually read the backs of 18-wheelers, but I, I noticed in fairly large print on the back of this truck was painted the words, please drive safely. I've heard that message a thousand times. I've seen it uh, on roadside signs, Please drive safely. But something was different when I saw it this time because as my eyes drifted down to the back of the truck, I saw the logo of the company who was posting the familiar message, please drive safely. It was the Batesville Casket Company. It, it was, there, was, there, was, there was an implicit message here. Please drive safely, or what you will soon need is on this truck. The context in which I saw the familiar message changed everything for me. I actually, oh yeah, be careful here. How, how fast am I going? Be careful. And some of us have heard the gospel over and over. We've heard about Jesus Christ repeatedly, and it's just like background noise. But you need to hear it in a different context today. You need to hear it in the context of the day of judgment. The message which we treat with such familiarity, the one who we, to our detriment, ignore and take for granted, on that day will be seated on a throne to judge us in all his holiness. Hear the warnings of the scripture. Hear the message of the gospel with fresh ears in a fresh context today. Think of your life in the context of this moment. The, the judge, the judged everyone, and the judgment. What is the criteria for this judgment? What is this judgment Based upon. Well, verse 12 says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book which is, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And lest we miss this point, it's repeated in verse 13. At the end of the verse, they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 
point is that God's judgment is not arbitrary. It, it, it is not random. It is absolutely just. It is completely fair because it is based upon the recorded works of each purse, person in his books. So in this moment, no one will be able to refute God's assessment. There, there will be nothing like what we know in our justice system. No one will get more fair treatment than someone else. There will be no hung jury. There will be no mistrials. No one will get off on a technicality. There are no technicalities. Every person judged by what they have done. It also means that no one will be able to blame someone else. No one will be able to blame anyone. There, there are no excuses in this judgment. There are no mitigating circumstances. Your Honor, may I approach the bench and sort of explain what was going on. There will be no inept pr prosecutors and brilliant defense attorneys that get the guilty off. Absolute, perfect justice without blame for anyone else. Biblical counselor David Pallison once wrote, in the most graphic terms, on the judgment day, God will ask, what did you do? He will not ask, what happened to you? Now, what happened to you matters. Let's be clear. What happened to you matters. It's just someone else will answer for that. The person who harmed you will answer for their actions. God will ask us, what did you do? He will reveal to us our actions, our works. There will be no moment of saying, yeah, but the people at the church are such hypocrites. No, what did you do? Well, my parents, no, what did you do? That is the basis for judgment. In our world, we are so familiar with passing blame. It starts in the garden with Adam saying, it's the woman that you gave me. She is at fault. And the woman saying, it's the serpent that tempted me. He is at fault. And since that moment, we have all looked to make an excuse and to pass the blame and to give, when you understand this, then you will understand my sins. And in this moment, in this moment, we will be judged by what we have done. And those who have sinned against us will equally bear judgment for what they have done. But our concern will be to give an account for our own individual actions. Not only will God judge our actions, but the, the scripture makes clear that he will judge our words. For instance, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. He'll even judge our thoughts. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says that he'll actually expose, bring into the light the motives of people's hearts. Romans 2 says he will judge people's secrets. So he will judge our actions, our words, our thoughts, our intents. I can fool you. 
I can fool those closest to me. I can fool my wife at times with my motives. Here's why I did that. Hide my motives. But in, in that moment, our motives are laid bare before the brilliant light of God's holiness on the throne. Judgment Day will be exacting, precise, and completely fair. It will be obvious, given the evidence in the books, it will be obvious where I stand before the Lord based on my actions. The verdict is clear for everyone who has ever lived guilty. Guilty of breaking God's law by disobeying his word. Guilty by failing to do what he commands us and has called us to do. God's standard is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and what will be recorded here will be the times when we didn't do that. Or to love our neighbor as ourself. To be what Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. When we are measured against the perfection of God, everyone is found guilty by what's in the books. And, and then verse 15 says that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is an image of hell. Jesus spoke frequently about hell. Um, I chose to use this passage because it sort of gives a uh, more thorough picture of the judgment, but we could have looked at many texts in the teaching of Jesus today where he refers to hell. M many ask in this moment, is, when reading this, is, is this a literal lake of fire? That's a very fair question. Um, it's a fair question in Revelation because Revelation, the genre of Revelation, is apocalyptic literature, and it is filled with symbols that represent something else, a beast coming out of the water, um, a dragon, um, all kinds of beings with eyes all over their uh, bodies. and uh, So there's all kinds of fantastic imagery in the book of Revelation. So it's certainly pulling it out of this text we see that the, the lake of fire that, that the devil and the beast are all tossed into the lake of fire earlier in the chapter. So it, it, it's fair to ask, is this symbolic as someone who treats God's word very seriously to consider the nature of the genre? The challenge with that is that Jesus refers to hell as fire many times. That, that would be his most common description of hell would have to do with fire. But also true that Jesus describes hell as being cast into outer darkness. Uh, being cast into outer darkness is likely a, a picture of absolute isolation. The whole attitude of, I don't mind going to hell because all my friends are going to be there and we're going to party in hell. That is completely foreign to the Scripture. The Scripture would seem to indicate that hell would be a place absent, where someone would be absent from everyone else. There would be no fellowship or camaraderie, as we know, in this life. But utter 
absence, utter aloneness, utter darkness, a picture of living an eternal existence with the most profound regret imaginable for resisting the love of Jesus Christ. So is it fire or is it darkness? Are those metaphors or is that what it really is? I'm gonna answer that question by quoting Charles Spurgeon. He was a 19th century Baptist preacher and he simply said this, shun all views of future punishment that would make it less terrible. Shun all views that would make it less terrible. So if it isn't literal fire, it's not something that's less terrible than that. If it's not literal darkness, then it's something that is not less terrible than that. The images that God gives us in the scripture aren't just for a scare tactic. He's not just making it sound really bad so that all, everybody will sort of get in line and then when you die and reach this moment, go, ah, it wasn't so bad. No, he gives us images that are literally the, the, the picture of the event or that symbolize something of equal or greater suffering. My, my sense is that hell under God's judgment will be far worse than anything we could imagine. Take the worst that you can imagine, it would be worse than that because every experience we know of suffering or difficulty in this life comes to us under a world where God's blessing is present, at least in a general way, over everyone. No one is experiencing the full wrath of God today on this planet. No one is experiencing God's holy rejection and hatred of all sin in this life. No one has ever experienced that before. So whatever we can imagine to have God's presence in blessing completely removed and to have the full force of God's judgment for our sin completely unleashed upon us, it will not be better than fire or utter darkness. It will be of a different dimension and a different experience than what we could imagine. And while this passage doesn't mention it, other scriptures mention that this experience of judgment here being thrown into the lake of fire is eternal. It's not a temporal experience. Numbers of places scripture talks about that. Matthew 25, 14, Jesus calls it the eternal fire. Meaning that it does, eternal meaning that it does not end. It parallels eternal life of blessing. Just as eternal life is blessing forever, so eternal judgment is presumably uh, this sort of endless, indescribable torment of our beings forever. There's nothing more sober than this to consider this. The passage also, however, has tremendous hope. Because in the passage, though everyone is guilty by the books, some are in the book. Verse 15, anyone's name who is not found written in the book of life is judged. But some are in the book of life. The book of life, again, is the registry of all those who are God's people. And what I find so powerful about 
this image of the book is that in the next chapter, in chapter 21, verse 27, we find it's talking about the holy city, uh, the new earth, on the new earth. It says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Here's the only people that will enter God's eternal city. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's the book of the Lamb, and that's significant. He could have said it's the king's book of life. He could have said it's the creator's book of life. He could have said it's the judge's, that would have been appropriate, the judge's book of life. But he doesn't. He says it's the lamb's book of life. Because those written in this book are those who are connected to Jesus as their lamb, as their savior, as their substitute. Earlier in the book of Revelation, we see that the one on the throne that is being worshipped with all the creatures in heaven, all the believers in heaven, the one who is being worshipped is the lamb who is on the throne. Revelation 20, he is clearly the judge on the throne condemning those who have resisted him. But elsewhere we see he is the lamb on the throne. Why the picture of a lamb? Why is it called the lamb's book of life? Well, because in the Old Testament, The way God dealt with his people's sin is they made sacrifices, animal sacrifices, including lambs. And when the lamb was sacrificed, it was a symbolic sort of substitute for the individual's sin, meaning that God poured out judgment on the animal as a substitute for judgment upon the person. And the person who came to God in faith offering an animal sacrifice as God prescribed had his sins or her sins forgiven. God's judgment poured out on an animal instead of a person. But ultimately, the blood of animals would not suffice because humans sinned, not animals. And so ultimately, judgment must be paid upon humans for their sin. And so what God does is he becomes man in the person of Jesus Christ. God comes as entirely human and entirely God is Jesus Christ and lives a perfect life. And then, of course, Jesus dies on a cross. And the moment of his death, his, his hanging on the cross, he is serving, he is acting as a sacrificial lamb, a sacrificial lamb who, for everyone who puts their trust in him. This is the ultimate picture of love. For the judge on the throne is also the lamb who came to sacrifice himself for all his people. That Jesus loved us so much that he himself would take hell for us, is what that means. That he would die in our place so that now anyone who repents of their sins and puts faith in Jesus Christ, anyone who trusts the lamb will have their sins forgiven. Those are the ones who believe Those are the ones whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus pays for everything in your life that is written in the books if you have trusted him and your name is in the book. Everything written in the books is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And the reality that our sins are forgiven, oh, that's a great joy today. But it will never be a joy like it will be in that moment. In this moment when we stand before the throne and presumably hear our name read out from the book, the Lamb's book of life, there will be a joy and a celebration and a relief that is unimaginable when we will see what Jesus has done for us, the one who would be just to sit on the throne and condemn all of us. He could condemn every one of us based on what's written in the books, and yet Jesus took our condemnation. Those who place their trust in Jesus are forgiven. If you're here as a Christian today, this is what you need to realize, that though this event is real in Revelation 20, your judgment has already taken place. Your judgment took place when Jesus was on the cross, when the Bible says, he who knew no sin came to be sin, that Jesus took our sins upon himself, and the Father judged the Son for our sins, the Lamb of God. Yes, this is a real event. Yes, we will stand before God, but your ultimate judgment moved from the future to the past in the work of Jesus Christ. This is what the Heidelberg Catechism says to believers in this question and answer 52. Here's the question. How does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? Answer, in all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place. I await the judge who has already stood trial in my place before God and has so removed the whole curse from me. All his enemies and mine he'll condemn to everlasting punishment, but me and all his chosen ones he will take along with him into the joy and the glory of heaven. The judge stood trial for you. Jesus Christ pronounced condemned, innocent, he's innocent, but pronounced condemned because of us. If you're here today and you are a believer, well, let me back up. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, I did not try to sensationalize this text. I I muted some sensationalism. I uh, I didn't preach Dante's hell. or or even sinners in the hands of an angry God. I I tried to mute, just tell you what the text says. I tried to be real and honest, but not emotionally manipulative. But I pray that as you read this text, you are alarmed. Not only alarmed, though, but that you come to see the grace of God offered to you in Jesus Christ. We don't want anyone here to experience this. We don't want anyone here, our family members who aren't here, our loved ones, our neighbors, our coworkers. We don't want anyone to experience this. And as long as you are alive, there is an invitation to come to Christ and to believe, to have your sins forgiven, and to know new life. There's tremendous benefits to knowing Christ in this life, starting with peace in our soul and a in a clear conscience. There's plenty of suffering as a Christian, but there are tremendous benefits, but they don't compare to the benefits on that day when you stand before the holy Lord Jesus Christ. The way you do that is you say, I want to leave my sins behind, the sins that cost Jesus his life, 
and I want to turn and recognize that I am a sinner, that what's in the books, all my thoughts, everything, the secrets of my heart, I have not obeyed God's word. I've chased other gods, other, other people, other things, other pursuits have been more important to me than God. And I want to repent and turn to him, and I want to ask for forgiveness. That's what you do. You turn in your heart to him, and you ask for forgiveness. It could be very simple. You could simply, right now where you're seated, simply say, I realize I need you as my Savior, Lord Jesus. I am guilty, and I want to be forgiven. I want to know you. I want to experience relationship with you, and I want to enjoy eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth with you. You could just tell him, please forgive me. I come to you. You can do that now. If you are a believer, well, there's tremendous relief to know Jesus, and, and yet there's also a tremendous burden that comes with this, to pray for those we know that don't know Jesus, and to share the good news with them, to serve them, love them, welcome them. They're not a project, so we love them and serve them and relate to them as fellow sinners, not as those who got our ticket and you want to punch it. No, we are fellow sinners saved by grace, but we, we pray, we love, we serve, and then we actually verbally share the good news with them, tell them the good news generously share, generously welcome, generously invite with urgency. If this is true, and I believe it is, unquestionably true, then it should shape everything about our lives today. May our hearts be broken for those who don't know the Lord, and may we change our priorities and our schedules and our pursuits such that we're mindful and looking and caring and reaching out to them. Again, Charles Spurgeon said this, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned or unprayed for. If you don't know the Lord, receive the warning today. We've been praying for you prior to this moment. We'll continue to do so. But may we, with love, reach out to those who need the Lord. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper to close the service today. This is the fellowship meal with the Lamb of God. And I pray that the bread and the cup mean so much to us today, that God's Spirit would encounter us. We would encounter the Spirit of God as we consider this represents Christ's sacrifice for us to pay the way for us. And may his spirit be here with us in a very real way to, to minister grace and comfort to us today. Let's stand together. If you're a believer in Jesus, we welcome you to receive the Lord's Supper. If you're not, 
then we urge you to not come and take the elements, but to take Christ, to take Christ. You will not be rescued by taking these elements. They will mean nothing to you if you're not a Christian. You'll be rescued by looking to Christ and believing in him as your savior. So do that. And if you do that, come and talk to one of us at the end of the service. We'll be down, a number of leaders will be down here just to talk to you, answer any questions you have. But we wanna help you know Christ and be secure in your faith in Jesus. That's what comes first, not this. And then once you are, then you can come to the table and it will be meaningful because you will be sitting and receiving uh, a meal that represents your whole hope in life and death. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.